Hey everybody, welcome back for another episode of No More Silos, my podcast on cultural Christianity. And uh, my name is Erica Santiago. I am uh, still thinking through some of the things that we've been talking about this season as it relates to reconstructing our faith. One of the the topics that has uh, really kind of stuck with me in the last couple of weeks as I've been teaching uh, theology classes at our church is developing a theology of gender as an apologetic. So today we will explore the significance of understanding historical events such as the doctrine of discovery, the Crusades, Reformation, and the Danvers Statement uh, from the uh, SBC folks, and how these uh, events impact our ability to help women reconstruct their faith after experiencing deconstruction. Um, We'll also discuss the importance of womanist biblical scholars and female egalitarian theologians, as well as men in this context, and recommend specific authors that, uh, that you should read to learn more as you are working on reconstructing your faith. Like I said, my goal this this season on No More Silos is to help you uh, develop a firm foundation upon which your faith can stand. When we think of apologetics, for those of you unfamiliar with the term, it literally means defense. It means to, an an apology actually is a a defense in the Latin word usage, in the um, Greek word usage of that word. And so that is important for us to understand. I, my favorite apologetic in the New Testament is Acts 17. In fact, I think I started the podcast with talking through, I think maybe by the third episode, Acts chapter 17, where Paul gives an apologetic defense um, to a group of folks who are not Christian, who are not Jewish, who are not necessarily familiar with his perspective on life and his worldview. And I think that's important. But when we fast forward to 2023, what we have now is a kind of a response to the response to feminism. You see, a lot of folks, uh, and there's been a number of articles, The Atlantic had a really good article about this uh, a few months ago, and I think I might cover it on a later episode. Um, They were talking about this failure to launch for, for men in the Atlantic article. And the challenge was, is that we spent, those of us, I'm Gen X, who spent our childhood as a result of the feminist movement in the 60s and 70s, learning how to be anything we want to be. Uh, The Barbie movie recently this summer uh, drove home how important that ideal was for our generation of women who could be anything they wanted to be. The problem is, is that we did not balance that conversation for the boys. So the pendulum swung in a whole different direction. And so when I talk to some men from my generation, on the one hand, they get the idea of partnership and marriage and partnership, uh, working with women as equals, but the gender pay gap exists. The U S open just this past weekend, as I'm recording here, um, celebrated 50 years of equal pay for men and women in tennis. And uh, it was a big deal that Coco Goff won $3 million. And Novak Djokovic also won $3 million for winning the tournament. But while we have all of that equality happening in 2023, there's this murky period of the last 30 years, where or 35 years, where because of uh, folks l- longing for some kind of a traditionalist, traditionalist feel, um, really this post-World War II uh, 1950s idealism, that created a theology in the American church, uh, specifically in the Southern Baptist uh, affiliated churches, that created not only not, not only reinforced white supremacy, but reinforces male supremacy and hierarchy. And so an entire generation of women have been told, 
you are less than a man or you can go to work and you can uh, do well at work, but that doesn't count in the church. In the church, you're still not able to be a pastor. You're still not able to lead anything. And what we end up with is a bunch of confused women. I mean, seriously, confused women, confused men, people walking around going, you know what? The church is either behind the times or it's not relevant to my life. Or why would I go to church and feel worse or feel bad, like not feel welcome, not feel empowered? And so there's this really murky world of, of, of biblical womanhood that's going on. And you guys have heard me talk about uh, Beth Barr's book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. And uh, recently I purchased uh, the Bible versus biblical womanhood from Philip Payne. And I want to bring all of this into context for us. So that's what we're talking about today on No More Silos, kind of uh, filling in the gaps of history, filling in, uh, connecting those silos of information that we have together. On the one hand, we've got uh, gender equality on the job that we're fighting for, and we're fighting for the dignity um, that has been absent, that showed up in the hashtag Me Too movement, in the hashtag Church Too movement. Where does that leave us? And so from an apologetic standpoint, and this is, this is my whole point today, theology of gender as an apologetic, how do we communicate to young women, but also to older women, boomers, um, Gen X, um, gosh, I can't believe I put myself in the same category with older women, but yeah, Gen X <laughs> and boomers who have lived through this uh, sort of boomeranging and confusion as far as gender and the church. And in the South, uh, we have a lot of tr- cultural traditions that encourage women to I don't know, develop cognitive dissonance with our expectations for what we're supposed to be doing at home versus uh, what we're supposed to be doing at church versus what we're supposed to be doing in the marketplace and, and workplace. We've had misinterpretations, woefully misguided, of the Proverbs 31 woman or Titus 2. We've had woefully misguided interpretations of uh, Timothy uh, Paul's letters to Timothy, pastoral letters, because you know, we're focused on our English translation and we miss the fact that it's gender inclusive um, when it talks about the qualifications of an elder. It says anyone, not him, her, just anyone. And we have evidence in the New Testament text of women who served in leadership roles. So it's really crazy the way that that we have cre- we've created this place where women are not able to uh, well, I, you know what? Women are just sitting there going, you know, I'm just going to walk away. I'm just going to walk away. So we're going to talk about understanding the historical context. To truly understand gender theology, we must explore the historical context that shaped it. The doctrine of discovery in the Crusades had a significant impact on gender roles within Christianity, perpetuating the belief that men were superior to women, but also that Western European Christians were superior to everybody. (laughs) And so uh, the doctrine of discovery got us into the, or justified the transatlantic slave trade. Um, The Crusades um, basically justified war upon war upon war because you had these uh, soldiers. And the crazy thing is, is Christianity is generally pacifist in, in theology, but they justified these wars because they misinterpreted the Old Testament wars for taking the land or taking back the land for Israel. When, um, and I love the way that Andy Stanley says it, take your cue from the covenant God made with you. Our covenant as believers, as new covenant believers, as followers of Jesus, um, is one of peace, one of, uh, we're not going after to take over land because the church lives uh, in us as a gathered group of people, not in a building, not in a specific location. There is no, um, yeah, there's, there's really not a reason to go and kill people um, for Jesus according to the New Testament. So there's that. But then the Reformation also shaped gender theology. I think I've talked about this on the 
podcast before, it reinforced traditional gender roles and further marginalized women. Here's how that happened. You have all these former Catholic priests in the Reformation, uh, Martin Luther included, uh, and they needed wives because at that point in Roman Catholicism, you could not be married as a priest. And so now you're not a priest. Roman Catholic priest anymore. So you are able to take a wife because in Protestantism, we're absolutely okay with people have being married and being uh, church leaders. So the women that were immediately available were all the nuns. And so now you have uh, nuns and priests that are marrying each other. And uh, this idea of the priest in the home appears. It's not biblical. I know, I know you've probably been taught that it is, but there's no Bible verse that correlates to the husband being the spiritual leader in the home um, as ordained by God. There just isn't. There's a bunch of verses, if you Google it, where people have uh, tried to draw that conclusion, but if there isn't a verse, they're all taken out of context. It, it, there isn't a verse that says you are, as the husband, supposed to be the spiritual leader in the home. Um, you're both responsible for being um for, for, for being disciples of Jesus if you're both Christian and teaching, you're both responsible for teaching your children. So uh, to also be followers of Jesus and to be good examples and to be productive members of the community around you. That is what is uh, substantiated in the New Testament. But this concept of a priest in the home comes from the Reformation when suddenly people were marrying uh, former priests. And because they'd had the theological training, well, of course, if my husband is more uh, biblically astute than I am, he may be the one that leads the family devotionals. Um, Or maybe more spiritual. Like in our house, my husband prays, but he also prays every single morning at 7 a.m. online. Uh, <laughs> so it's his thing. That is his his gifting. He is really good at praying. I am very introverted. Praying out loud is not necessarily my thing. So in our house, he would do the praying. But when it comes to uh maybe scripture questions or theology, the kids are like, hey, mom, (laughs) what's this mean? What does this mean? So you both have your strengths and that is the whole point. But that idea comes out of the Reformation. Um, And then the third thing or the next thing, fourth thing, actually, that I want to mention is the Danvers Statement. Uh, Released in 1988, it was, or 87, 88, around that time, the Southern Baptist uh, Church denomination um, basically created this response to the feminist movement and created the idea or created the center for biblical manhood and womanhood. And they cherry picked some verses and everybody just kind of went along with it. But all of those things put together further solidified beliefs that caused women to question their place in the church. So by definition, deconstruction is the process of questioning and examining one's beliefs, which can be challenging in a disorienting experience, which has caused some people to leave the church altogether when they're not able to get any answers. And so I think that having a theology of gender as an apologetic can help women reconstruct their faith by providing a new lens through which to view scripture and their relationship with God, by embracing what are what's known as egalitarian beliefs, uh, women can find a sense of empowerment and belonging within the church. Now, I should uh, preface that by saying that there are some things that are considered egalitarian beliefs that I'm not completely always on board with. Um, There's some things that are complementarian beliefs that I'm, well, I don't think I'm ever really on board with any of that. But the way that I I phrase it and the way that I have uh, grown through this spiritually is I look at the silo of culture how I operate and behave in my culture around me as a, a African American woman, um, and I look at what does the Bible say. And the thing that we forget sometimes is how much hospitality factors into loving one another in the New Testament. That we embrace other 
cultures, other ways of living in the New Testament, Paul is very careful to uh, instruct his um, his churches that he starts, his church leaders like Timothy and Titus, to say, hey, don't make a, a, a muddle of the, or don't cause problems in the community by trying to be so radically different. Let's be subversive in the way that we do things. We're going to um, allow everybody to kind of live within the context or the framework of the culture that we're in, but here's how you renew your mind to uh, to be different. This is how the gospel transforms your relationships, and he proceeds forward with that. So, Historical context is going to be important, and I'm going to provide in the notes um, a probably extensive reading list that's not exhaustive, but extensive, because I think that developing a theology of gender for apologetics um, addresses patriarchy, racism, um, addresses cults and false teachings that thrive on misinterpreting scripture by inserting hierarchy and culture inappropriately in support of power that adversely affects our male-female relationships. The gospel brings us together. Anything that does not point you towards freedom in Christ is not the gospel. And specifically, how all of this impacts black women and women of color. How do we do apologetics differently to address the questions and concerns that women have about their identity, the Imago Dei, their, their made in the image of God, uh, discipleship going forward? How do we, because these ideas don't just die overnight, you have to uh, new situations come up and you've got to reinforce and relearn and unlearn things that you didn't realize you had learned. Um, ideas of equality and ideas of faith in God. Do you realize how many women who have been in abusive, physically and emotionally abusive relationships leave the church because they are not able to be seen and heard in their church context because there's too many pastors who are not trained in dealing with trauma situations or abusive situations. And because of hierarchy in the church, the pastors are advising these women to stay with these abusers instead of checking the abuser and saying, hey, that behavior is not Christ-like. There's, you don't get to do that. That is not how you treat your wife. But because we are telling women that their husbands are uh, in charge of them, then you get that, you know, some guys, like my husband, for example, they don't abuse that. Uh, they don't take that and go, oh, I'm going to run with it. I'm in charge um, and and do crazy stuff. But some men who have uh, a propensity or they enjoy the privilege that patriarchy offers, then they go all Ken on it. And then it's Ken's world instead of Barbie's world. And instead of some kind of a, a balance that we're looking for. So uh, ironically, the same steps to respond to heretical teachings and cults are actually the same steps that can be used to unravel most of your anti-woman faith teachings. Yeah, I'll say that again. Most of the same steps that we teach in an apologetics class uh, to respond to heretical or heterodox teachings and cults are the same steps that can be used to unravel anti-woman faith teachings. History is the biggest problem with sharing the gospel today. Again, the Crusades, the Age of Discovery presented a theology of Western Christian Europeans that centered themselves instead of Jesus. They twisted scripture to accomplish goals of power and dominance over other people um, by dehumanizing them and saying they were not human, that they were not made in the image of God. They brought them bad news instead of good news. Most of our, I love the the way that uh, Eric Mason puts it, bricks, uh, black religious identity cults that we're talking about uh, when we teach on apologetics are actually rooted in response to the Crusades and the doctrine of discovery, as was sanctioned by the Western Church at the time, the, the Roman Catholic Church. And so, and then we get to, you know, the documentary that aired this summer on Amazon, Shiny Happy People, where you've got that uh, guy that created a cult with his umbrella heresy that made it into mainstream Christian teaching because many of us have not had good teaching on the Trinity. Again, it's an apologetic uh, challenge that we're facing 
There was a uh, post that was shared by ChristianityToday.com, and it was written um, in, as kind of, I guess, an advertisement for the Courageous Com- Conversations Conference by the Jude 3 Project, which is an apologetic or- organization. Um, I'll quote here from the, the article. It said, Approximately 16 million women who have left the church in the past decade express a variety of reasons for their departures, ranging from sexism and misogyny to a lack of time and competing interests. Gen Z teens say they want a conversation partner who's open to talking about difficult topics related to faith. And many Black Americans speak to the importance of church as a place that offers spiritual comfort, fellowship, and sermons that address topics like racism and immigration. We have developed a way of talking about Jesus that doesn't require discipleship or actually doing what he said do. It's it's the element elephant in the room. Um, we're not encouraging people to follow Jesus' commands as disciples of Jesus. And when we do that, we develop a cognitive dissonance around controversial topics like abortion, like immigration, like systemic racism that ignores the basic human dignity of the Imago Dei. Christians insist on behavior modification instead of heart transformation. And guess what? I get it. If it were easy, we'd all be doing it. Our sinful inclination is to put ourselves first instead of putting others first to demonstrate the love of Jesus. We want to follow steps or learn keys or tips and tricks that absolve us from actually following Jesus as our Lord and Savior. I um, heard it this morning. Oh gosh, I was on social media and um, I think it was my pastor that actually said this. It was that too many people think seeking first the kingdom of God you know, quoting Matthew, means that I get up in the morning, I read my Bible, I read a devotional, and then I live the rest of the day however I want. But that's not freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ is to do what Christ wants us to do, to do good. And so um, instead of putting others first to demonstrate the love of Jesus, we end up putting uh, ourselves first. And so we seek first the kingdom, but that's an all-day thing. That's the whole point of the daily office. Um, I love that in Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, Pete Scazzaro includes that teaching. So for those of you who are reconstructing your faith right now, historical context becomes increasingly important as we unravel the myths of cultural Christianity to understand what it really means to be Christ-like. So what you've got in your Bible, yes, but what you're hearing from people in the world is, here's how not to do it. Another way to interpret a historical context is the culture wars of the last 50 to 75 years. The Danvers statement lands smack in the middle of that. Um, there's a an, a graph in on the website graphsaboutreligion.com, and I'll include the link in the, in the show notes, where the writers in the article with it says, Liberals have won the culture war. And they say, well, I've looked at the data from the general social survey, and it's clear to me that Christian conservatives failed miserably in this endeavor. On every single social issue, the average American is more liberal today than they were just two decades ago. So here's my takeaway from that. If the Danvers statement solidifies theology around biblical manhood and biblical womanhood and this hierarchy and they cherry pick verses uh, out of context and they read, redefine all of their, their um, uh, context around all of this, what we end up with is a response from the next generation that says, I'm reading the Bible and I see, I don't see what you're saying. I'm missing it. What's going on? And then people are just simply walking away because they're like, well, that's not nice. And that doesn't have good fruit. One of the things that um, my husband and I were teaching when we did a, a, a series on relationships, just relationships in general, your friends, your associates, your um, people that uh, that you, that you're mentoring, um, we were... Uh, basing it uh, off of uh, Pastor Darius Darius Daniel's book, Dr. Darius Daniel's book, Relational Intelligence, which I've talked about here on No More Silos, um, where if you are um, uh, expecting 
people to behave a certain way. You have to look at the fruit. And here's the point. The fruit of the Spirit is what we should expect of every Christian. If you're in an abusive relationship, the filter through which you determine if this person is not living up to their professed Christianity is what? The fruit of the Spirit. If you're in a relationship where maybe it's not full-on abusive, uh, maybe it's not quite there, but they're just not nice to you, that's probably someone you should stop dating. So when we think of Imago Dei and gender equality, we have to look at the fruit and so the graphs about religion chart, about the, uh, how the liberals have won the cultural war, really, to me, is evidence of the fruit of the Danvers Statement, the fruit of how uh, the majority uh, media, me, the majority Christian media circus has created this environment where people are like, yeah, I don't want to be a part of your team because the fruit is bad. So what is the concept of Imago Dei, if you haven't heard that before? Um, it's the belief that humans are created in the image of God. So it's it's the Latin word for image of God, which is in Genesis uh, 1 and 2. It's a foundational principle in Christian theology. We talked about being God's image, um, the book by Carmen Joy Imes and creation. And so you can read more about it there. However, throughout history, interpretations of this concept have been influenced by cultural biases, leading to the marginalization and the subordination of women within religious context. And so let's talk about uh, a little bit comprehensively, if we can, the biblical understanding of gender roles and the inclusion of women in leadership positions, drawing from some of the scholarship of notable scholars who've made significant contributions to these discussions. I want to leave you with today um, what you're going to get with these resources um, that I'm going to list in the show notes or that I'm telling you about here. And I've said this on the the podcast before. In the early church, they were very much influenced by the Greco-Roman culture. That's the pool they swam in. So patriarchal societal norms in the Greco-Roman culture um, influenced the interpretations of the gender roles. But the interesting thing here, when we read uh, books like When We Were Family by Joseph Hellerman, um, I had to read it in seminary for my doctoral program when I was studying discipleship in small groups. When we, when we really look at it, we're missing the point. Our actual closest analogy to society norms in the first century is probably for us, the Godfather movies. I know I've said that before, is this patron-client type of relationship. Not that everybody's a crime family or anything like that, but that everyone had a family leader. It could be male, could be female. That was the patron who supported everyone else, either through their authority of who they were and their character or their financial situation. Um, the most important relationships were the sibling connections. And marriages were simply contractual alignments of families but because women still really belonged to their blood family at the end of the day. And the Jewish Genesis idea of leaving and cleaving was not a thing culturally in that time. Husbands didn't love their wives in a romantic sense, which is why Paul makes that amazing assertion in Ephesians 5. We assume husbands love their wives. Because we're living in the aftermath of this world. But we cannot assume that that's how they looked at it back then. They didn't love their wives in a romantic sense. And everyone was looking out for themselves. So they were looking out for their family. So you have this this, uh, family unit. And then you have uh, these new Christians who were the new family of God, where you could be adopted into Abraham's family, into this family unit. According to Greco-Roman culture and philosophy, women were not made in the image of the gods, but they were poor copies of men or deformed versions of men. Look at it this way. A man could theoretically work out. They were the original gym culture uh, and maintain a physique of his body throughout his life. However, women were physically smaller in some cases. And once they had children, our bodies change. In fact, the entire physicality of women changes and evolves from puberty through menopause. And instead of thinking that's an amazing example of God, God's intelligent design, Plato and Aristotle didn't think so. They're like, there's something wrong with them. They're less than. And so we take that and we bake that into our interpretation of the gospel. But even after that, even if we take go take that away, 
you still have, somebody might say, well, what about the Jewish culture? Um, because we see that in the Old Testament um, so many times that women were taken advantage of or that they lacked resources because they were a woman. Again, patriarchy begins in Genesis 3. So in Jewish culture, women throughout the, the Old Testament are still heroes. They're still leaders. They still do the work of ministry. There's tons of examples. But by the time we get to the time of Jesus, even the Jewish people are scattered throughout the Roman Empire, and they have adopted a lot of the prevailing cultural beliefs. In fact, some folks weren't even circumcising their boys anymore so they could fit in at the gym because hey, they worked out naked or the public baths as they tried to move up the societal ladder. A great book to add to your library for more on this is N.T. Wright's The New Testament World. has quite a bit of information. It explains the culture, lifestyle, and the pool they're swimming in um, when it comes to the early Christian church, what's really going on, so that you can see how Paul is giving us something that's just radical in that time. Now, if you're looking for uh, thinking through our theology of gender and, and highlighting uh, prominent female leaders in the early church and the subsequent decline of women's leadership, two books for this are Tell Her Story by Nijay Gupta and Desert Mothers, uh, The Forgotten Desert Mothers by, I think her name is Linda Swan. Let me double check that. Laura Swan. Laura Swan. Laura Swan wrote the Forgotten Desert Mothers. And, and what's important about the Desert Mothers is seeing how there were women in the first few hundred years of the church who worked alongside men, leading communities of believers, growing and teaching and serving and doing all that acts to uh, one anothering that needed to happen, taking care of the poor, taking care of the widows, taking care of the orphans, taking care of other women, um, seeing after their well-being and training them in theology and uh, in scripture and writing extensively. But because we have discounted things by women or um, it's some of it has been lost to history, we miss all of that. And then because we have been, uh, especially here in the South, operating even if you're not Southern Baptist, operating from the Council of the Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and the left, the the the, the uh, legacy of the Danvers Statement, um, we have ignored a lot of the ways that uh, women lead, women's leadership uh, was evident. In fact. Um, and one of the ways of looking at it is, you know, every generation you have this uh, this statement. And when I was teaching about the ecumenical councils, there's seven major ecumenical councils that uh, happens in early Christianity. And these ecumenical councils, they're thrashing out uh, theology, like the, the Trinity, for example. Um, they're deciding how do we uh, interpret Mary's role as Jesus's mother and all of those things and, and other details when people had the time to sit and think about it and pontificate on it. But one of the things that you notice if you hold those seven ecumenical councils up on a timeline and the dates that it's generational when the questions come back up. It's every 30, 40, 50 years, every uh, 30, 40, 50 years or so that the questions start to come up and then it's like, oh, okay, we got we to gotta get all, get all the bishops together and sit down and hash this out and figure out what do we believe about this. And what we're seeing now is if the Danvers Statement um, is put out in 1988, in response to what they feared about the feminist movement of the 60s and 70s, then the generational response now 35 years later is that we can read and see that the women were in fact in the Bible, actively part of leading in the early church. And so now we have all of these books that are responding to these problems in our theology that we're seeing because it is turning people away from Christ because they're saying there's no freedom over there in that Christ. That is not Jesus. And it's the same thing that Frederick Douglass said during the abolitionist movement. I don't know what Jesus y'all are following, but the Jesus I'm reading about in the Bible, this ain't it. it it's, it's that read, circling back and going, I don't think this means what you think it means. Another good book uh, for medieval historical reference is Beth Allison Barr's The Making of Biblical Womanhood, which actually addresses the Danvers Statement and shows how women in the church were active during the Middle Ages. Now, when we think about the misinterpretation of Paul's writings, um, Tell Her Story by Nijay Gupta is really good. 
But I also want to point you specifically to the African-American perspective on Pauline writings. And so two really good books that I've mentioned on the podcast before, but I want to kind of pull it together with our theology of gender as an apologetic, is African-American Readings of Paul by Lisa Bowens, uh, Reception, Resistance, and Transformation, and also Reading the New Testament, uh, Race and Rhyme, Reading the New Testament by Love Lazarus Seacrest, two books that you can purchase and read. Why? Because you've got to see how, as African Americans, while on the one hand, we may have been preached to or taught one thing that did not include a hermeneutic or or an interpretive filter where we should read Paul through uh, as freedom in Christ, um, realize even in real time that what we were getting was an incomplete theology was an incomplete story. And so we can share that with women today who uh, are boomers or Gen X or millennials or Gen Z and say, no, that's not what it says. And we're not the first ones to notice that there was a problem with this. Now, let me run through uh, pretty quickly some notable scholars and their contributions. I've mentioned Philip Payne's book, The Bible Versus Biblical Womanhood. That gives us an egalitarian perspective. He uh, argues for an egalitarian interpretation of key biblical passages. He backs it up with uh, exegetical uh, research in the original language and in uh, the history and historical context and literary style and all of that. Um, He does the cultural uh, research. He does the historical research. He uh, puts things in the right context, and he also does the linguistic analysis to support gender equality. Um, Another book along uh, those lines is, uh, from a research standpoint, is um, Paul and Gender, and, oh, I don't have it in here, the uh, new... New Testament, I'll put it in the notes. Um, It's by Dorothy Lee, I think, and I did not bring it with me uh, to my desk as I was recording today, so I apologize for that, but it will be in your show notes. Um, When we think of scholarly contributions, I want you to to think of it, it's not just someone writing a book. The difference between scholarship scholarship and someone writing a book uh, about their experience. Experiences are personal experiences sometimes can be ignored by church leadership. But if you can say, no, this is what it says in the Greek, can you show me otherwise? Then you have a leg to stand on if you're going to take the risky proposition of actually talking to your pastor about this. <laughs> so, um, and then a historical analysis from historical scholars. You know, I'm a big fan of Kristen Dumais and, and Jesus is John Wayne, but that is a history book written by a Christian. Historical analysis by Beth Allison Barr um, shows up in The Making of Biblical Womanhood. But the other um, resource when it comes to also, oh, I forgot this one, in the egalitarian research perspective is Being God's Image by Carmen Joy Imes. She is a history professor, um, but she is specifically trained in Old Testament. She's an Old Testament history professor. And so she breaks it down in the Hebrew. Like, so even if somebody says, oh, well, in the Old Testament, there was this. Yes, she points out all of those other options for us. Um, A more accessible, um, accessible book when it comes to uh, historical analysis is um, Beth Barr's book, The Making of Biblical Womanhood. So I definitely recommend that. Um, And she examines the impact of patriarchy, the fruit of patriarchy, and the exclusion of women from leadership positions throughout history. And she addresses um, the common uh, interpretations of Paul or misinterpretations of Paul, the way that I like to put it, that um, show up in a lot of our churches today. Now, because many of you listening to this are people of color, um, as I am, um, then there's the intersectional approach. And that is the womanist approach, the intersectional approach. I did a lot of my doctoral work on this uh, approach. The idea of approaching the Bible in 
uh, biblical interpretation considering race and gender and class. And Wilda Gaffney is a great resource for this. Um, addition, in, in addition to Lisa Bowens and Love Seacrest, and um, if I might also suggest uh, Angela Parker in her book If God Still Breathes, uh, which takes a technical look at the authority of Scripture and white supremacy specifically. Um, the intersection of biblical interpretation that looks at biblical characters and the narratives that are present in the Old and New Testament that challenge what we think are traditional gender roles. Um, we often read the Proverbs 31 woman uh, passage in the Old Testament and Proverbs as if she was subservient to her husband. That's why he was able to sit at the city gates. What we failed to notice is that she was leading. She was running and managing her household in a way, um, and, and in large part because she had help. She wasn't trying to do this all by herself. And so she and her husband both had their lanes, but it wasn't that they were not equal. It never actually says that. So that's important to, to notice those things. And I think Wilda Gaffney does a great job in her uh, research with all of that. So check out her book. She's got quite a few of them on Amazon. Rhetorical analysis is another way of looking at Paul's writings on women in leadership, um, arguing for the inclusion of women based on their rhetorical abilities and contributions in the early church. Cynthia Westfall's book, Paul and Gender, um, is a great resource for that. Uh, another resource is a book called uh, Finding Phoebe by Susan Hyland. And here's the crazy thing, y'all, and this is why I say it's a generational thing. All of these books I just bought in the last couple of years. These are books that have all just now come out. And so the the thing that we have to realize is that when we when someone says, "Well, how come nobody said this 10 years ago?" Well, here's the thing. There were a few people crying in the dark 10 years ago, but they weren't the the media push that runs Christianity, Christian media in the, or the, or the uh, authorities of Christian media, I guess is a better way to say it, in the United States really come out of the Southern Baptist tradition. All of the other publications that are out there, their books are showing up in uh, maybe mainline denominations or other groups where people are looking at it from an academic standpoint. But until the hashtag Church 2 movement a few years ago began, people really weren't picking up these books and going, hey, here's an aha moment. How do we avoid this in the future? And so we're seeing that now. Now, I am a big fan of books on based on experiential faith. In fact, uh, one of my students asked the other day, does the study of theology discuss or talk about having personal experiences with God or experiencing the Holy Spirit? And the answer is yes. But the thing is, is that in an academic setting, a lot of times what we're focused on is trying to get to the root of the bad theology about women and so that we can spend time focusing on our experience with the Holy Spirit, which is so powerful and so amazing and so uh, so so important to our lives as believers. That taking a Sabbath rest or being able to rest, I was reading about a, a woman from... Uh, Emory today, who whose name escapes me at the moment, but she has a ministry based on naps, literally naps, because Sabbath rest is so important. In Being God's Image, Carmen Joy Imes also talks about the Sabbath. Did you know that the Sabbath doesn't end? Like that's the only day, day seven is the only day that didn't end in uh, creation, in the creation story. It doesn't have a, and then there was the next morning of day eight. Like there's no, we're, we are supposed to be living in operating from a state of rest in God. So what is our experience with the Holy Spirit? Rest. When Jesus says uh, in Matthew's gospel, it's recorded that all ye, gosh, I learned everything King James, all ye who labor uh, with heavy labor, come and I will give you rest. If you are laboring and it's too much. Jesus wants you to rest. If your yoke is heavy, Jesus will pick up 
the, the, the yoke with you. He will carry you. That experience is what we see in the African-American readings of Paul. That is the experience we get when we reread the New Testament in race and rhyme. That is the experience we get in, in my grandmother's house, um, in, uh, Yolanda Pierce's book or Abuelita's faith, um, and other books that focus on the experience of Christians. When we ask the question, as Angela Parker does, if God still breathes, why can't I? She shares her experience that that caused her to go and look at the Greek and the Hebrew and go, what is it about the about biblical authority that is tied to white supremacy that makes the Bible problematic for black women or just people? saying, I don't want to participate. What is it about this experience of community that connects us together? Salvation is a community creating event that we see in When the Church Was a Family by Joseph Hellerman. What is the experience that Beth Allison Barr has that leads her to write the making of biblical womanhood? She shares her experience in the book. Many of these books and resources that uh, talk about complementarian and egalitarian um, egalitarianism deal with the experience of the author that positions them to say, you know what, I've got to share my story. I've got to, I've got to share my story. I got to let people know that this is not God's way. If God still breathes, why can't I? So it's important to have um, the Holy Spirit. And, and, you know, here's the crazy thing. I was listening to another podcast the other day, and I'll probably talk about it later, but I did talk about it in the episode on secular humanism, um, either earlier this year or last year. Um, the New Atheist Movement, you may have heard about that. The New Atheist Movement, one of the challenges they're running into now as as, as a movement is that in their effort to become more like uh, a community to to model themselves, uh, their discipleship methodologies after Christianity. There are some in that movement scratching their heads, going, well, "Why don't we? Why? What is it about Christianity we don't like again?" Like they're literally asking themselves, "Why am I not a Christian?" Because all the things that I'm looking for are there, and that's that experience, and that is so important. So there's diversity of perspectives and interpretations. Um, this morning, I heard a noise outside, and because I'm nosy, I went and looked out the window and saw that there's some men working down the street. And across the street, they put up a sign that said, one lane ahead. And what I noticed with that one lane sign, I actually went back out and took a picture of it. Um, what I noticed about the one lane sign is that in shutting down one side of the street. So now it's, you know, now basically effectively there's just one street. They're not saying it's one way. They're saying just one lane. You got to, you know, look out for other cars. But what struck me about that sign this morning, it made me think about apologetics and the theology of gender, is that we have been told there's this uh, two ways of thinking about things. We've been told that. In, in, In other words, Many of the people I've talked to, people of color, people who are not affiliated in any way with the SBC, with the Southern Baptist folks, they've not heard these terms, complementarian or egalitarian. Um, so, But what they have heard is, quote, equal in essence, but different in function. To which an egalitarian-leaning person, whether they are familiar with the terminology or not, would observe that any role distinctions are in favor of the person with the power. And that's not how it's set up in Genesis. So again, you've got this, this question. Can you read and interpret Genesis through a complementarian lens? Of course you can, because you're reading back into it the hierarchy and the gender roles of patriarchy by assuming that Adam needed an assistant, so he, God made Eve. And by misinterpreting the word often translated as rib, actually, uh, which actually means side. Uh, so yeah, so there's lots of good folks, men and women of God, who happily carry out this interpretation because that is what they were taught. And many men are not going to question it because they're elevated in this scenario. They've got the power. And women with proximity to the power, they're going to allow it and not question it either because, well, it gets, you know, they're, they're able to do what they want to do or, or live their lives anyway. 
But three, most healthy married couples don't actually practice this behind closed doors. They come to a consensus together. They operate from their strengths, from their gifts, from their skills and common sense. They, they look at the mutuality of, of 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and what Paul says. And it was interesting because this is what was kind of floating around in my head when I saw this one lane ahead sign on um, another uh, podcast that I listened to. They've got research and stats to back all this up. Um, Sheila Gregoire and her team, she said the fact that the complementarians in name only who act out egalitarianism do better is hardly a ringing endorsement of complementarianism, especially when, if complementarianism is acted out, people do so badly. It all goes back to the fruit. Our theology of gender as an apologetic asks the question, what is the fruit of the way that you are building your understanding of men and women in God. So when we're reconstructing our faith, it's important from an apologetic standpoint to know and to admit that in a theology based on hierarchy doesn't actually work for most people because the people who are, are, are teaching it aren't actually living it. So there's an ongoing conversation that's out there. Um, and I want you to join in. I want you to look at the blogs of, of folks like Rachel Held Evans and Sarah Bessie. I want you to, to research womenist scholars like Renita Weems and Dolores Williams and Katie Cannon. Um, these are valuable tools in understanding gender theology and its impact on marginalized communities. Check out the Junia Project and the Bear Marriage Podcast of the Great Sex Rescue and She Deserves Better, which are working towards turning this around. Check out the Jude 3 Project. They're not focused just on women, but they're focused on African-American apologetics or urban apologetics. Eric Mason has two volumes out now on urban apologetics. Check out Truth's Table, uh, the book and the podcast. Um, The concept of Imago Dei should be the foundation for understanding gender equality within the Bible. It's in order to to add value to this ongoing conversation, you really must critically engage with the biblical texts and then promote equality within the church. Developing a theology of gender as an apologetic is a complex but vital process in reconstructing our faith and empowering women when we see them marginalized. By understanding the historical context that shaped gender theology, exploring womenist biblical scholarship, and learning from egalitarian theologians, we can create a more inclusive and equitable church. And that is what the Gen Z folks are expecting us in the older generations to get it together and put that in, and bring that to bear, bring that to life. So I encourage you to explore the authors that I've recommended today on No More Silos and engage in open dialogue with those around them. Um, thanks for listening. I look forward to sharing more empowering topics in the near future. Follow me on Instagram at Cultural Christianity. And if you have questions, it's always welcome to send me an email at podcast at ericasantiago.com. Thanks for joining us today on No More Silos. Have a great rest of your week.